Thanks for listening to the World Religions Podcast by J.R. Foresteros. This is a class I'm teaching at Beaver Creek Church of the Nazarene, so from time to time you might hear some people asking questions. Uh, unfortunately, due to the nature of the podcast recording software, it probably is not going to come through, but I'll do my best to represent those questions fairly in a way that you can hear them. Other than that, everything should be good to go, so enjoy the podcast and thanks again for listening. As we get started tonight... I first wanted to review uh, the methodology that we're going to be using throughout this class, and we'll, you'll see it in practice tonight when we work through Hinduism. And remember that this is all based on Paul's strategy of evangelizing the Athenians uh, at Mars Hill at the end of Acts 17. So uh, the first thing that we're going to do is get a basic introduction to the faith's worldview. So we'll talk about the history as much as it's relevant, but what we're really, really focused on is people who are alive today who practice Hinduism how do they think? How do they see the world? What are some of their core beliefs and practices? Uh, then we're going to look at some areas of agreement between Hinduism and Orthodox Christianity. What are some things we believe alike? What are some things that we do that are alike? And then we'll end with some areas of disagreement between Hinduism and Christianity. What are some reasons that we don't just say that uh, Christianity is one branch of Hinduism or vice versa? Why, why are they distinct religions? Uh, and then if we're going to be talking with Hindu people, uh, at, at some point we're going to encounter these differences. And so we'll talk about why they're important. And, and the goal of all of this is to equip you to build truth-seeking relationships with someone who is, particularly tonight, someone who is Hindu. So again, if you have a neighbor or co-worker or something like that. So, so with that in mind, let's get into Hinduism. Called it Beyond Karma and Cows, because that's probably what most of us think about when we think about Hinduism. So, uh, first of all, as we've already mentioned, it's hard to talk, it's actually pretty much impossible to talk about Hinduism without talking about India. Uh, India is what the, the birthplace of Hinduism. Uh, it, Hinduism is over 4,000 years old in, in some form or fashion, and, and most Hindus in the world today still live in India. India is uh, very much mostly Hindu. I think it's over 80% Hindu. And what's fascinating about India, we call it a subcontinent because it's not technically its own continent, but because of the way that uh, the rivers and the mountains are all set up around it, uh, it really has been isolated for a lot of human history from other cultures. Uh, it's separated from China by the Himalayas and uh, some of that, and, and then you got, you've got desert up to the uh, on the other side of it. And so uh, the culture of India really stayed isolated and was allowed to develop in its own unique ways uh, for a long time long time. Uh, Hinduism does not have a founder, uh, which makes it fairly unique compared to a lot of other world religions. You can't point back to a Moses or a Jesus or a Muhammad or a Buddha or someone like that in Hinduism. Uh, instead, Hinduism is sort of what missionaries and explorers called what people in India do. So historically, when exploration and imperialism took shape in Europe, and, and explorers got to India, they found three different kinds of people. They found Muslims, they found some Christians, and then they found everyone else. And everyone else, no matter what they did, were called Hindus. And so, as you'll see tonight, it's actually really hard to, to talk universally about what Hindus do and what Hindus believe. Uh, you could imagine trying to talk about what all Christians do, and trying to incorporate Catholics and Orthodox people and all of the different Protestant denominations. And you, you see really quickly, well, you, you can't say much. You have to speak in really large 
broad generalities because there's so many different types of Christians that it quickly becomes difficult. Hinduism is exactly like that, but like 50 times harder to do. Uh, there are just so many different kinds of Hinduism. So uh, again, what we're going to be doing tonight is painting with very broad brush strokes. And as you encounter individual Hindu people and begin to build relationships with them, uh, you'll find that they'll have their own unique understandings of a lot of this stuff. And and the only way to find out what those are to get to know them and to, to learn from them. So I'm oh, sorry, I actually wrote all that down. I didn't give it to you. There you go. Uh, so let's do a brief uh, kind of timeline of India and how that how that incorporated into Hinduism. Uh, the First of all, pre-1500 BC, uh, the most important religious texts were, were what has been called the Vedas. So you've probably heard of Aryans before. These were an early, early, early kind of people that were, that moved all over the Eura Eurasian giant continent. Uh, Aryans are uh, are the people that the, the Greco-Roman cultures came from. They're the people that the Germanic tribes came from, and, and many of them also settled in the Indus Valley in India. So the Aryan religion was this kind of early version of the Greek pantheon. So you think Zeus and Aphrodite and Hera and like all of the Greek gods that you probably took a mythology class on one time. Well, all of those were later forms of Aryan gods. And so when the Aryans settled in the, in the Indus Valley in India, they brought all of those gods with them, and then they encountered all of these peoples that were uh, in their own tribes that had their own kind of tribal deities. And over hundreds of years, all of those different ways of worshiping these different gods kind of got smashed into one big group of gods. Uh, and, and so the Vedas that we have... Uh, that have that have come from again around 1500 are these collections of rituals and sacred chants and things like that that are still used in some different Indian worships or, or Hindu worship circles. Uh, the Rig Veda, if you've heard of any of the Vedas, you've heard of the Rig Veda, and it, it's the most important one. Uh, then, in about 500 BC, well, by about 500 BC, uh, a, a group of texts emerged that are now called the Upanishads. It's a collection of about a hundred texts, and of the hundred texts, there's about a dozen of them that are really important and influential in Hinduism. And what you see in the Upanishads is this kind of movement towards sort of monotheism. Uh, what what you got in the Upanishads was was this was statements that all of these different gods that were out there, the Aryan gods and the Indus kind of tribal gods and all that, are really all manifestations of the ultimate divine reality. So all gods are really kind of one god. And that's why I mean it's like a sort of a monotheism. Uh, the Upanishads are really philosophical. And so you, when you read them, it's a lot of philosophy and theology and kind of trying to figure these things out. And, and the, the, the most important thing about the Upanishads is that they present spiritual disciplines as the way that humans connect to that ultimate divine reality. So things like prayer and meditation and worship rituals. Uh, and so that's what you start to see. It's, it's a movement away from uh, priest-led worship and into something where anyone, you know, anyone can meditate. Anyone can pray. Uh, anyone can do these private worship rituals. You don't have to go to a priest in a temple to do all of those kinds of things. So you start to see not only a movement towards a sort of monotheism, but also a movement towards a religion that's for everybody. And then the, the last and probably the most important uh, phase was the composition of the Bhagavad Gita in 200 BC to AD 200. Uh, the Bhagavad Gita has been called modern Hinduism in two and a half hours because that's about how long it takes to read it out loud. 
the Bhagavad Gita is part of a big, huge epic poem, like the Iliad or the Odyssey or the Epic of Gilgamesh, if you've ever heard of any of these other ancient epic poems. Uh, it's called the Mahabharata. And the, the Bhagavad Gita, this particular story in there, features Krishna, who if you've ever seen Indian art, you've probably seen Lord Krishna. He's this blue guy up here. Uh, he's always blue. Uh, and and he was an avatar of Vishnu, which Vishnu is another god that we're going to get to in a little bit. So we'll come back to what why Krishna is an avatar of Vishnu and why that's interesting. But essentially Krishna was sent from the gods to earth to teach people the path to righteousness. Um, and the, the core teaching of the Gita is that duty in life is the path to religious enlightenment. So if you really want to understand modern Hinduism, you need to understand this concept of duty in life. And that's where we're going to be spending most of our time on. So what we need to talk about then is, is when a Hindu looks around at the world, what do they see? How do they understand reality? And the first core thing uh, that a Hindu believes is that all reality is something called Brahman. Uh, Brahman is this ultimate, uh, the way they talk about it is that Brahman is an ocean. Um, I think, uh, yeah, let's just do that. We're going to go through each of these individually. But uh, this, is, this is sort of a picture of the Hindu worldview, this big cycle of everything. So uh, we're going to go through each of, these, uh, each of these pieces one at a time. Uh, first of all, Brahman. Brahman, like I said, is that ocean of divine reality. And they understand that uh, everything that exists, everything you see, the table, the projector, yourself, the air, animals, everything are, are manifestations of the Brahman. And the way, the way that they picture this is that if Brahman is the ocean, if reality is this big ocean, then the world, the physical world, is like waves on top of the ocean. So you, you, know, you, can, you see a wave and you point at it and you can say, oh, that's a wave. But really, the wave is just a small piece of this larger reality. And, and it would be silly to say, well, that's the wave, not the ocean, right? Because, I mean, the wave is the ocean. And the wave could not exist without the ocean. But at the same time, for, for a brief moment, the wave has its own sort of individual existence, uh, and then it, then it crashes back down in, into the ocean. And and so the when the Hindus would look around at reality, and they would say, all this that we see is impermanent. Everything is always changing, and and there's nothing that we see that lasts forever, except for the Brahman, except for the ocean. All of these waves are impermanent, and what what gets us tripped up is that we get all attached to the things and they distract us from the underlying reality of everything. We get caught up in the maya. And so if you've ever heard a Hindu talk about maya, it, it gets translated as illusion. And that's, that's really unfortunate because Hindus don't think that, that the world is bad necessarily. They just think that it's impermanent. It's always changing. Things are always changing. You know, and they would, they would look at our bodies and say, I'm not the same person I was when I woke up this morning. Uh, because I've had food and I've had experiences and I've, I've, I've changed even in just little microscopic ways. You know, some of my cells have died. I've made new cells. Uh, so e even our bodies, even our, even our selves are constantly in a state of flux. And, and, and when we get too caught up in uh, wanting things to be permanent and thinking that things are permanent, uh, we're caught up in Maya and the illu in illusion of reality. Uh, so the Hebrew or the Hindu worldview is that uh, what they call samsara. 
And Samsara, it basically think of it as a big wheel, which is why I did this graphic. Okay? Um, Samsara is that reality is constantly in a cycle of birth and death and rebirth. Everything that happens has already happened before, and it's going to happen again. Everything. So just like the ocean is constantly moving and constantly making new waves, uh, and the waves are made of the same water that the last waves are made of, but it's a new wave, but it's not really a new wave, but it's kind of a new wave. Uh, that's, that's how reality is. When you look at samsara, uh, that, when you look at the concept of samsara, that's what they're trying to tell you, is that everything you see, it's been and it's going to be again. So don't, don't get too attached to it. Also, don't freak out too bad when it goes away. Uh, the next idea is the idea of Atman. Now, this is where this is where a Hindu starts talking about themselves. They say we are uh, we are impermanent, and the Atman is our true self. It's this it's this identity deep below the surface of who we are. It's not what we look like. It's not the things that we like. It's not the things that we do. It's not the education that we've received or the experiences that we've had. It's this uh, it's this deeper part of us and. If you talk to Hindu people and you try to get them to really pin down what Atman is, it's they can't. It, it's really it's really fuzzy and hazy. There's, there's this really really deep part of us that's not any anything that we can really see, and even that is eternally changing. But this is the part of our this is the part of ourselves that's the that's one with the Brahman. That's that's one with the divine ocean of reality. So all people have this this Atman inside of them. That's a deep deep part of them, and so what happens? in uh, our world is that every time we act, there's a moral consequence for that action. And if our moral consequence is more good than bad, then when we die and are reborn in that wheel of samsara, then we're going to move in a positive direction. And if it's more bad than good, then that means we're going to move in a negative direction. You probably, I'd be surprised if anyone in here has not heard of karma before. But that's what karma is. Karma is the moral consequence of every action that we uh, that we take. And so the the concept of reincarnation plays right into that wheel of samsara. That that we live countless lives over and over and over and over again. And our atman is constantly being reborn into this world as a new wave on the ocean of Brahman. And we're constantly trying to actually escape from the cycle of samsara. We're actually trying to escape being thrust back into maya over and over and over again. And so that escape is called moksha. When you have enough karma, then you can actually escape from samsara, from that wheel of endless rebirth and redeath, or and, and death and rebirth, and you'll be finally reunified. Your atman will be reunified with the Brahman. Okay, we went through all that really fast, and there were a bunch of foreign words in there. So I want to stop for a second and ask if anyone has any questions about the basics of the Hindu worldview. Any questions about Brahman or Atman or samsara? Yeah, Doug. Mm-hmm. Moksha. And does that make you one with Brahman? Yes. You're yeah, you're kind of you and everybody else in the state. Correct. Well, eventually. Yes. Well, 
Others have escaped. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, yes. Yes. And trees and bugs and chairs. And, I mean, all all reality, not just people, but all reality is is manifestation of Brahman. So you're 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 sort of one with the universe again. Uh, in what in what sense? Uh, that's where it gets a little tricky. I think most Hindu people would say no, not at this point. Your Atman has been fully reabsorbed into the Brahman, and that's that's actually the good part because your soul is tired of the constant cycle of death and rebirth, and so this is your soul rests and it doesn't have an identity or a sense of self anymore. Sort of like the wave doesn't have like you wouldn't be a wave. Anymore. I guess you go deeper in the. Uh, it's been revealed to them in their sacred texts. No, no, there are uh, that that'd be the Vedas and the Upanishads and the Bhagavad Gita, all of that. So, yeah, I mean, and really, this this is where we're you know when we're talking about religions, right? This is what we're getting down to, uh, because you could ask the same thing about Christianity. How do we know our theology? Well, uh, you know, none of us were there for creation. None of us have like uh, shook hands with all three members of the Trinity. That kind of thing. Um, a lot of it is tradition and text and, and personal experiences all mixed in there. And a Hindu person would, would say a lot of that same kind of stuff. Absolutely. Yeah, those three texts that we talked about, I mean, the Upanishads and the Gitas and the, uh, or the Gita and the, the Vedas. Yes. So uh, they started there. The Brahmin kind of pushes off. You know, the, the Brahmin. They really like the ocean metaphor because the Brahmin isn't really personal and doesn't really have a will, sort of like the ocean. So at some point, the you know the waves crest up and then crash back down into the Brahmin, and so it would be a, yeah, the, just like that. Um, reality sort of emerges from Brahmin and then is Maya, and then at some point it all comes back down into the Brahmin. So uh, Angie. Yeah, Maya is reality, and the word means illusion. But again, what they mean by that is that. Uh, things are not permanent. That things are all manifestations of the Brahman. Sure. So all. Uh, so so every person has an Atman. Which think of it like a soul. That's probably helpful enough. Um, it's not, they're not really the same thing, but it'll do for our purposes. Every person has a, a part of themselves deep down inside that's the most true piece of themselves. And that is the piece of you that gets reincarnated and reborn into, into life over and over and over again. And how you are reborn, the, the position in, in your life that you're reborn into, the gender you are, whether you're even human or if you're an animal, all of that is dependent on the karma that you've accumulated in your previous life. And so if you were good, it's, you're going to go up, kind of get, you know, like a promotion. And if you were bad, then you're, de you're demoted. So, um, th and that, that actually, it, uh, if you've heard about the caste system in India, that's where this idea comes from, right? And so it's, it's, it's tricky because, again, you just can't say anything about Hindu, all Hindus. But uh, this lends itself to a kind of oppression because if someone is born to a poor family, you say, well, it's, it's their fault. Because they were bad in a previous life. They accumulated negative karma. 
if someone's born into a wealthy family, it's it's good for them. Now, on the flip side, it's not all just nasty because if a wealthy person is being unjust, everyone's going to look at them and say, they're not appreciating, they're accumulating a lot of bad karma and things aren't going to go well for them. So it's not, it, it's, not like a, it's not like if you're rich, it's a license to do whatever you want. I mean, the system does have some inner, you know, kind of regulation, uh, but you can, you can see how, how it could lend itself uh, particularly with uh, a lack of compassion to some of the lower castes. Uh, things like that. And there, there's a whole class of people called untouchables uh, that are just the, they're the bottom of the ladder. So, Your true self is the caste. Yes. And that stays whether you become a higher caste or lower. Correct. Yep. But you still get the same. Yep. That's that, that, that real pe- Yeah, that's, that's what escapes. escapes. Correct. Okay. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. Sure. Well, um, again, this would this would depend on uh, the denomination of Hindu or the particular set of beliefs of Hindus. There are some Hindus who hold all life to be sacred, no matter what. So, if some I mean, there there are, are Hindus who won't even uh, like pick fruit off of a tree. They'll only eat fruit that has fallen to the ground because uh, that's killing you know a living thing, uh, things like that. There are other Hindus who will eat most uh, not most almost all Hindus are vegetarian, but they'll they won't take it as far as uh, some of some of that, so they would say that that hurting hurting a living thing just is a, is a way to incur negative karma. Um, now, just like with all religious traditions, there are plenty of Hindus who kill people that are not like them too. I mean, the, there's wars going on between the Isla- the Muslims and the Hindus in India right you know right now. So uh, certainly, just again, just like every other. Every other tradition, it's sort of selectively followed, and it depends really on who you're talking to. But, but that is certainly an aspect of Hinduism, is this, this commitment to do no harm and to, uh, it's, it's actually called ahimsa is the, the term, and it, it's, it's sort of a core doctrine of Hinduism, is that you should, you should as much as it's up to you, do no harm. And if you do, you're, you're accumulating negative karma. So. Uh, well, certainly a Hindu doesn't see it that way. Uh, they would, uh, they would say that their devotion is to God. Um, I, I, that's, that's probably a more complicated question, uh, than we, than we have a lot of time for. But when we get into talking about the differences between Christianity and Hinduism, we'll see they're not, they're not the same religion. And so, again, it, when a Hindu is participating in a puja, are they praying to Satan? I don't think, I don't think so. Uh, I'm also not a particularly good, I'm not ex, an expert in spiritual warfare, so. Um, but, yeah, Diane. No, no, puja is a worship. It's what they call their worship in a temple. We'll, we'll get there. Sorry, I keep throwing out these terms. We'll, yeah, so. Yeah, puja, P-U-J-A, is, is what, that's what you do when you go to temple. Uh, you can also do them in your home if you have a home altar, but it's, assen- it's essentially like sort of like having a little meal with God. It's actually not too different from communion, at least the way it looks. So, uh, we'll get there. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, yeah, in a, in a way. So, so here's the question. Uh, that's an excellent transition to the next thing we want to talk about. What we really want to know then, if this is how they, if this is how they see reality, was well, how, how do you escape? Is, is it just you just hope you did more good stuff than bad stuff? And while that is certainly a part of it, there are actually paths that they have to enlightenment. And so, uh, as I mentioned earlier, the, what the Gita outlines is, uh, what it, what they call Dharma or duty. Think of Dharma as the word duty. Uh, in your life, you have a particular duty uh, based on where you were born into. And this, this follows from their understanding of, of reality. If because of your karma, you were born into your life where you are right now, then that's where you're supposed to be. And the way you accumulate good karma and the way you're reborn into a better station is by being the most fully who you're supposed to be where you are right now. Does that make sense? Okay. So the, uh, what you'll hear what you'll hear Hindus talk about is your your place in life or your duty in life, and they understand as you get older that that changes. That they, and they have four major situations in life, and each of those uh, each of those stations or situations has a particular goal. Uh, so when you're a student, which this is basically like when you're a kid up until you get married, which is usually fairly young, like around twenty, uh, maybe mid twenties. Uh, when you're a student, the main goal of your life is pleasure and knowledge, right? Just have fun. You're a kid, have fun, play, learn about the world, like just, just be. You don't really have a lot of responsibilities, you know, just enjoy yourself. Uh, then once you get married, you are a householder. And your main job here is to, is to accumulate wealth and security, right? You're, you're supposed, you're, you're actually taught to seek the best for your family. Have family, have kids, and acquire a lot. As much as you can. Uh, then you're a retiree. And at this point in your life, this is when you get to focus on your religious duties, on, 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 on pursuing God. Right, you're, you're, and, and again, the idea is now you have kids who are taking care of you. They've grown up and started their own households. You've sort of done a good job. You've fulfilled your duty in life. Now, now you get to kind of focus on yourself again and focus on your religious duty. And then there's a fourth optional uh, path or stage called renunciation. And this is if you ever see the Hindus who are wearing orange and they're in ashrams and stuff like that. This is where you can actually leave your family and kind of become a wandering pilgrim. Or you can live in a monastery, an ashram, and then you devote yourself exclusively to religious pursuits. And, and, and a Hindu would say all of these are good when they're done in their proper place. Any questions about that? Uh, I believe so, um, though I'm, I wouldn't swear to that entirely. I think that uh, they, they could have some female ashrams, but most, most of them that I've encountered have been male. So an ashram is like a monastery. That's where they would go to all be a bunch of monks and meditate and pursue, uh, pray together and things like that. Now, that's still, oh, yeah. Not necessarily. It more just symbolizes that you've set yourself apart for the gods, 
And so it's uh, because they, they think anyone anyone can do that once. It's, again, sort of like once you've taken care of your family and everything. Once that's over, then you are free to devote yourself fully to God and to pursue escaping or at least at least accumulating karma and, and um, going becoming a you know better in the next life. So, uh, but these people, the renunciates, are very revered in Hindu culture. Uh, they're considered wise. They're considered holy. So, but they they don't necessarily have priestly training. Uh huh. This is this is so. This is the this is the uh, this is the template to enlightenment that any person and they, a Hindu would say any person has to follow this path, uh, which is wherever you are, be that as well as you can. Now there are different ways within this path to do that, which is what we're about to talk about. But they would say any person should should do that. So that that's why if uh, in Hindu culture there's a tremendous amount of uh, pressure to have very good jobs and to, to do as well as you can. That's why a lot of uh, Hindu people who come over here are doctors and engineers and things like that. Um, that's also uh, why they do arranged marriages in Hindu culture uh, because, again, they, they say, why would we let a kid pick out who, who they should be with? They have no idea what makes a good spouse. Uh, and so uh, they, they arrange the marriage, and then, that's, again, that's part of your duty, and that's, that's a big coming of age for Hindu culture. But it's all it's all about wherever you are, do that. And so they, you know, they would look at if someone, if someone, for instance, didn't want to get married, uh, they would say that's a problem. They would say, no, you like you should that that you have to. That's your duty. If you don't, you're accumulating bad karma. So, yeah, dharma is duty. So that what 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 is your role? What's the thing you're supposed to do? Doing your dharma is how you get good karma. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it's... Uh, ev- Every marital system has the ways that it's going to be abused, you know, just uh, so. Arran- you know, most, most marriages in human history have been arranged. Uh, that, you know, in, in, this, in, in the biblical times, marriages were arranged. Uh, in most of even medieval Europe, marriages were arranged. Uh, so that's, uh, there, there, there are a lot of cultures, non-Western cultures today, for the most part, still do arranged marriages. And, you know, so, but, but certainly... Uh, certainly, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of potential for abuse in them. So, uh, like a betrothals and things like that. You know, I'm not I'm not totally sure how. Uh, it probably depends on what region or what culture you're in. Uh, how that works. Some of them may set them up when they're very young. Uh, some of them probably wait. Uh, I think over I think over here it, it's actually kind of a it creates a lot of problems for first generation American born so ki- kids who are born to parents who came here from India who are Hindu uh, because of, obviously our culture is uh, about as opposite from arranged marriage as you can possibly get 
And so uh, when they grow up in our culture, but they have parents who are very much still a part of Hindu culture uh, and Indian culture, it, it just it creates a lot of problems. So, so let's, let's talk about the paths now to enlightenment. Uh, you've heard the term yoga before. Yoga actually means path. And it, uh, it refers to any of the paths that Hindus outline that will lead to enlightenment. So it's not just sitting in the lotus position and bending your back in half and then twisting your arms around. Um, so there are, there are lots of paths. Uh, first, there's a path called the path of study, and that's exactly what it sounds like. Uh, so th this would be what you would do uh, to a degree while you're still a householder and things like that, but it's cer certainly once you're a retiree and you can fully devote yourself, these are the different ways that you can devote yourself. So one would just be to study, where you study, the te you study sacred texts. You study the Upanishads, you study the Bhagavad Gita, you study uh, the Vedas, and you study, 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 study. Uh, one is the path of karma, which is simply you just keep you just keep doing your duty. You just keep being who you're supposed to be and following that. You don't, you don't really do a lot else. You just kind of focus on being yourself. One is the path of meditation. This is a symbol uh, that in Sanskrit means om, O-M. You've probably heard that before if you've ever... Made fun of like you were pretending like you were meditating before, and you went, "Oh, that's you. That's what you were doing." Um, and and that word means yes. And essentially, what it, what it, what they're doing when they meditate that way is they're they're saying yes to the universe. They're trying to open themselves up and receive uh, receive God and become one with God. There is the path of what you would call yoga, right? What you think of bending your body into certain positions and things like that. And and this is actually a very physical form of spiritual devotion. They believe that there are different energy centers in the body and that if you align them in certain ways, then that connects you more readily with divine energy. Uh, the dot on the forehead is also sort of a manifestation of this. It's a symbol of divine energy. Uh, and so that's all the path of yoga. Uh, now, obviously, when you go to yoga at the Y, they've just sort of taken away all of the spiritual elements and just do the bendy, flexible, stretchy parts. Um, so... Uh, of spirituality, of spiritual disciplines. It's like, uh, you, you could sort of think of it like prayer postures, uh, just taken to a, 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 a radical degree. And it's all, it's all centered around how they understand the body to work and energy flowing through the body and all things. So all the different, you know, yeah, yeah, all the, all the different energies in your body and the different positions are meant to do, and I, I don't know enough about all of the chakra, if you've heard the term chakra and all that kind of stuff. That, that's what all that is. Uh, and again, not all Hindus do that. This is a particular path that you can do if you want, and if you don't want to, you don't have to. Um, and then the last one, which is by far the most popular, is the path of devotion, which in Hindu they call bhakti. In Hindi. And uh, so bhakti Hinduism or a bhakti yoga is the path of devotion. And this is worship of gods, veneration of gods. Okay, most Hindus, if they're going to choose a path towards enlightenment, it will be the path of devotion. They might even sprinkle in some of the others, but this will be the main one. So this is what we're going to spend most of the rest of our time talking about. Okay. Uh, so when if you go to a Hindu temple, like if you go to the temple up here in Beaver Creek, and you participate in a puja, which is their worship thing that they do. It's not really a service. 
But if you worship, if you were to worship with a Hindu, this is what you would be doing. This is bhakti Hinduism. Uh, it's technically monotheistic because again, they think all they think everything, including the gods, are manifestations of the Brahman. Um, but this is also where you've heard that Hindus have 300 million gods or whatever. Again, it's because it just kind of became a catch-all for all of the different cultures that became a part of what we called Hinduism. Um, but I have never met a Hindu, and I'm pretty sure there aren't any, that actually try to worship all 300 million gods. Um, per typically what you see is a Hindu person will choose a god that they have a particular connection with. And that could be for any, it could be because that's who their family worship, it could be because that's the region they live in, that's where they got popular. There, there's all, any number, because they like it, uh, they like that particular deity, whatever, but, but um, everyone will connect with a god and that will be, that will be who they're devoted to. So in Hinduism, there are uh, the big three, okay, um, first is Brahma, not Brahmin, that's where it gets a little confusing, right? Okay, Brahman is the divine reality, the ocean that everything comes out of. Brahma is the creator god. Okay, now Brahma is actually not very popular. In fact, his, his consort is much more popular than he is. Okay, so, so there are not very many Hindus, even in India today, who worship Brahma and who are, who are devoted to Brahma. But he's one of the big three. He gets a lot of art drawn about him. Uh, the next one is Vishnu. He is by far the most popular, as are his wives and children. And he is the preserver slash sustainer god. Okay? And Vishnu visits Earth, has visited Earth nine different times as an avatar. So the avatars of Vishnu come to Earth when Dharma is waning, when people aren't living the way they should be waning, uh, they should be. And the avatar of Vishnu comes to tell everyone they need to get back on track. Okay, so they believe that the Buddha, who we'll talk about next week, was an avatar of Vishnu. They believe, uh, then the two most popular avatars are a, a guy named Rama and then Lord Krishna. Okay, so both, both of them are forms, they're incarnations, they're avatars of Vishnu. Now, some people will try to say that Jesus is an avatar of Vishnu. Uh, but Hindus roundly reject that because when you look at the things that Jesus taught, they're actually not anything like what Hindus believe. So uh, it's it's a nice idea, and bec because you have a God who is becoming flesh, and Vishnu is even talked about as a light shining in the darkness, and there's a lot of language that's similar to, to the way the scriptures talk about Jesus. And so there are some people who, again, who want to argue all roads lead to heaven, and it doesn't really matter who you worship, and they'll say, oh, see, like, we can make Jesus sound enough like Vishnu. Let's just say that he was an avatar of Vishnu, but actual Hindu people who actually really like Vishnu uh, say, no, that's actually not okay with us. Uh, we definitely don't think Jesus was an avatar of Vishnu. And Christians are happy to agree with it. Uh, now the last god, uh, the last of the big three, is Shiva. And Shiva is the destroyer or the recreator. How many of you have seen Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom? Okay, you know, at the end when they, well, the, the cult that they're trying to rescue the kids from worship Kali, and they keep calling her Kalima, no, oh, Kalima, and when he's trying to take out Indy's heart, that is what he said, oh, Kalima, oh, Kalima. Uh, Kali is Mother Kali, and she is the uh, consort of the wife of Shiva. So, as far as I know, there aren't any actual crazy kid-sacrificing Kali-worshipping cults in, I think that was more Hollywood, but uh, 
So Shiva is the destroyer and the recreator. And this is a major distinction between the way Christians see the world and the way Hindus see the world. Uh, Shiva in Hinduism is, is a good, normal, natural part of the world. Because death and rebirth are a natural part of the cycle of samsara. Right? Now, Christian theology teaches that death, destruction, un uncreation are aberrations. That they're not how the world was created to be. That death is an intrusion on God's creative will. Uh, and a Hindu would say, well, no, it's not. It's fine. Everything changes. Everything dies. And, and you shouldn't get too upset about it. And so this is actually a major distinction between the way a Hindu would look at the world and the way a Christian would look at the world. But before we spend... Okay, so, uh, so we're about to jump into some similarities between Christianity and Hinduism. So before we go there, do you have any question about the path of devotion? Bhakti Hinduism? The gods? Yes. Yep. No. They are all men. They all have wives, uh, usually two or three wives, and lots and lots and lots of children who are all gods. Uh, no, no, it might. It might. And it, it might. I, I honestly don't know a whole lot about the dot. Um, I know that it is a particular mark of Hinduism, and I know that it does represent like divine energy, but I, it may also be particularly for married women in some way. Um, that's that's entirely possible. So. Yes. The Bhagavad Gita. Yeah, Dharma comes out of the the Gita. So. The, the story of the Bhagavad Gita is, uh, is Lord Krishna has come to earth as an avatar of Vishnu, and he, is, he spends all of his time talking with this prince who's fighting in a war. And so the, 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 the Bhagavad Gita is this conversation, this dialogue between Lord Vishnu and this prince, and Krishna teaches him that if, if he wants to have the, the favor of God, if he wants to have good karma, if he wants to, um, to work his way towards, uh, towards escape, towards moksha, then the, the path to that is through following his dharma, following his duty, doing what it is right for him to do. And so that, I mean, that's, that's in a very small nutshell what the Gita is about. And that forms the basis for how modern Hinduism, how modern Hindus live and how they act in the world. Right? That, that my path is by doing what I am supposed to do. Right? Following my duty, following my station in life, following my path, my yoga, towards enlightenment and doing those things to the very best of my ability. Yep. Uh-huh. The priest does. Uh, so I went I went with my friend uh, that I talked about last week. I went with him. He took me to the temple one time and I attended a puja. And, you know, there wasn't really a dress code. Everyone was kind of dressed like nice-ish. Like I didn't see anyone in flip-flops and cut-off jean shorts or anything like that. But there was, like it certainly also wasn't like what we would think of a Sunday best. Uh, either, uh, and then you, uh, when you go in, when you go into a Hindu temple, there are actually altars to ton, well, not not like hundreds, but there are lots, probably a couple dozen altars to different gods. And so again, you you find the one that you are that you are devoted to, and then you worship at that. And a lot of it is personal prayer, 
Uh, you can just kind of come, it's, it's come and go there. Like I said, there's not really a service. And then it, I believe it's at scheduled times throughout the day, or maybe you make an appointment or something like that. One of the priests will actually come and perform a puja. So I don't, I don't even remember which deity we went to, but I, you know, I just could have kind of stood at the back of the circle and everyone just stood in a circle, uh, kind of in front of the altar and the priest recited some Sanskrit scripture and everyone held their hands out and he put food and then a, like he had like a kind of a real thick sticky wine that he slopped into everyone's hands and then you you ate that's why i said it's kind of like communion because you ate and then you had wine and that you were you were having a meal with the god you were sharing a meal with the god so you're worshiping Yeah, I think I think a, I think a Hindu would certainly say that. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's why you know earlier it started when we start talking about with start with Brahma. It does uh, or Brahman. It kind of sounds like oh, there is no there's no God. Like you don't. You, how do you pray to an ocean, right? But when you actually get into how Hindus practice, they they talk about having relationships with their gods and that they pray to their gods and they ask for things and and things like that. Uh, very similar to what what we do. So. No, I don't. I don't know. I don't know much about their worship ceremonies, so or their uh, marriage ceremonies. So, <sighs> typically, so all in you see this in a lot of Hindu iconography. There's a lot. There are a lot of um, and and it's what they're holding in their hands that is more important than the fact that they have a lot of arms. So every each thing that they have in their hands means something specific. And then even the position of their hands. So a lot of times you'll see uh, this uh, symbol where they kind of they, they make a circle with their thumb and their forefinger, and then they have the rest of their fingers extended. And that's a symbol of blessing. So you'll see a lot of them have a hand up and out, kind of holding it over you like a blessing. And then a lot of times you'll also see them where they make the same symbol, except they have their hand open and down. And that's supposed to communicate uh, that they're safe, that they're not going to harm you. It's like a symbol of welcome. So Hindu art is extraordinarily Good. Any other questions? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's one of the that's one of the key differences. So all right, let's talk about before we get into differences, because they are numerous. Let's talk about how we build bridges to Hindus. Uh, if we're going to if we're going to begin a spiritual conversation with a Hindu person, we're going to try to build a relationship with them. What what are some things that we agree about? Places that we can begin uh, the same way that Paul did with the Athenians. First of all, the best place to start a conversation with a Hindu is actually with devotion to God. Uh, Hindu people love to talk about God, and a great question that you can ask a Hindu person is what what is the role that God plays in your life. And they are happy to talk about that with you, and they, they love to share. Um, you don't have to be afraid. Uh, it, it's not some you know some religions are a lot more private, and Hindus Hindu is Hinduism is not. And so uh, Hindu people love to talk about their faith. They love to talk about God. They're not like weirded out or, or threatened by it. And if you know a little bit, which hopefully by now you do, then that will go a long way towards helping build some good conversational bridges. And and they would be happy to share what God does in their life, and then hear. Uh, in your life, what God, what, what God does in your life. 
Uh, another place that we agree is with God's eminence. And, and essentially by this, I mean the, that we both take the presence of God in our lives very seriously. And we both take the idea of a relationship with God very seriously. And so that can be a good place to start a conversation. There are uh, some other faiths that we'll look at where God is certainly not so eminent, that you don't really have a relationship with God. You sort of do what God tells you to do, or there is no God, right? Uh, next, both Hindus and Christians recognize that there is a real danger in being too attached to the material world. Uh, Jesus talks all the time about the danger and the lure of wealth and how things can actually get in the way of our relationship with God. Paul talks about how people have replaced uh, the creation, uh, the creator with the created. And we've made idols out of the things that are around us. And, and a Hindu, uh, in a way, now again, it's not the same, but they also, they also believe that the material world can actually be a hindrance to our spirituality. So, uh, not necessarily, because uh, they would say that their duty would be to, uh, I mean, really to learn better how to, it's not that they're anti-stuff and, and they're not anti-acquiring wealth and things like that. It's just that you can't be too attached to that stuff. So, um, can't think of any really good, not silly examples, but you know, like if, uh, like if, if you, if you own a car and it gets stolen, you know, I mean, we all, we all know people that that would be like the most devastating thing in the world that their baby is gone. You know, and and we would look at that and say that you're probably a little bit too attached to that thing, man. Like you need to back off a little bit. And and a, a Hindu would agree. They'd be like, yeah, that mm, you got some problems. You know what I mean? Yeah, things are good. They're they're fine. They're useful, but they can get in the way. They're 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 impermanent and they're illusory, and you can't get too attached to them. Uh, now we're gonna, when we get to differences, we'll talk about how that's not exactly the same thing that Christians believe. But again, it's an interesting agreement that we have about stuff. Uh, another one is that spiritual practices are a path to God. Uh, you will find that a lot of Hindu people are very, very, very disciplined in their spirituality, their prayer, their meditation, their study of their scriptures and things like that. And Christians also believe that those things are very, very valuable. Uh, we value meditating on the scriptures, memorizing the scriptures, right? We value prayer. Uh, we value these spiritual practices because we say that they actually help us have a stronger relationship with God. And a Hindu would agree. So you can talk about the things that you studied in your scriptures together. You can talk about uh, what it's like when you pray. You can talk about how you meditate and maybe the differences between Christian meditation and Hindu meditation. And then finally, and this one was an interesting one. When I was talking to my friend, this is one that he brought up, uh, that he sees. He said, he said, both religions believe in a form of grace, which is that only God can release us from suffering. So the, the, uh, we we don't, uh, and this this is ultimately I uh, I think it kind of I think it I think it breaks down in theology for Hinduism, but it works out in practice. Um, because because ultimately a Hindu believes the reason that you accumulate good karma, the reason that you follow your the reason that you do your dharma, the reason that you follow the path the the yoga paths is because God will grant you grace, your God that you're devoted to. 
will grant you grace and will bring you closer to enlightenment. Um, so long, so you do it. Right. God is. Right. And again, that's why I said it's different. Like it's certainly different. We're going to talk about this in differences, but 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 I guess I guess that maybe a better way to say that would be both Christians and Hindus acknowledge that people need God in their lives, in in a real way, in a significant way. If that makes sense. Yeah, I, you know, I would say, yeah, let's just get into the differences, because, yeah, that's that's in there. And I, we're, we're going to talk about it anyway. Might as well just go there. Um, yeah, go ahead, Andy. No, not at all. They would love to talk about that. And, in fact, I mean, and again, ask them, you know, why did you choose that God, and what is it about that God? I mean, yeah, absolutely. They would not be offended by that at all. Okay, before, and actually, before we get into differences, I want to talk about things that we both value. Um, so, kind of already talked about this. We both value our relationship with God. We both value peacemaking as a spiritual practice. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Right? Paul said, uh, you, uh, repay, you, you repay evil not with evil, but with good. And, and Hind, this is something, again, if, if people know anything about Hinduism, they know that Hindus are nonviolent. That, that, I, that concept of ahimsa, do no harm. Um, Gandhi, one of the most famous Hindus ever, probably heard of him before, uh, loved Jesus. He thought Jesus was phenomenal, incredible. Uh, and he's famous for saying, I like your Christ, but not your Christians. Because it was the British... Christian Britain, who was occupying India, that was killing his people and that was treating them all unjustly. So he was like, man, I, I really, I think Jesus is pretty awesome. I just sort of wish you acted more like him. Um, and that was one of the, that was one of the big things that, that kind of kept Gandhi rejecting Christianity as a, as a system because he said it just, the Christianity that I'm seeing doesn't look very much like the guy that it's named after. So, uh, but Gandhi loved Jesus. He loved his teachings on nonviolence. He practiced them. Uh, so that's that's another place where we overlap. Another one, taking care of the natural world. This is again this now this is why cows are so venerated in Hinduism. And actually it actually comes from the fact that Hindu uh, Hindus have a long history of being an agrarian society uh, and in an agrarian society a cow is basically the best thing that you could possibly have because it provides you with milk uh, it, it has a lot of uh, manure, which is a good fertilizer, right? It has, it has all, it's, it's like an endless supply of resources for your community. Uh, it'll provide you heat in the winter if you keep it inside with you, which a lot of people do in those kinds of cultures. And so for, 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 for Hindu people, the cow kind of came to, for them to symbolize uh, provision and life. And, and, and that, that, was, uh, that was why they considered a sacred animal. Because when, for them, when they look at a cow, they really see they they see uh, real tangible symbols of God's love for them, uh, of God's provision, and things like that. Uh, I'm pro- I, I don't know the Hindu scriptures very well, so I, I'm I'm not sure. I I think they can. Uh, I, I'm not sure. Yeah, again, I just I don't know that much about Hindu culture and 
when I've talked with Hindus, I, tr I haven't brought up cows. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I do love to eat them. Um, they're, they're, cows are how I know God loves me too, just in a totally different way. Um, and then, again, we, we both value spiritual practices. Uh, we, we really, really do both think it's very important to be engaged in the spiritual, pra spiritual practices like prayer, meditation, uh, reading scripture, memorizing scripture, uh, doing acts of mercy and charity. So, good. All right, let's talk about some things, that, some important differences between Hinduism and Christianity. First of all, uh, we understand God in very, very different ways. For Christians, we believe in the Trinity. That's the that's the most important thing that we believe. Uh, God is three persons and one being. Uh, not three gods. Not one God that wears three different hats sometimes. But one God and three persons. And that's confusing, but that's how we say it, because that's what, that's what the scriptures reveal to us. Uh, we believe that God is distinct from creation. And we believe that God is always unified. And I'll talk about that a little bit, because seeing what how it's not like Hinduism helps us understand that. So in, in, in Hinduism, they believe that, and uh, the Brahmin, that all gods are one essence. So not, not, not three gods really, because all three gods are really one god, and all 300 million gods are actually really one god. They're just sort of different manifestations of the one god. Second, they believe that the gods' essences are identical to creation. Vishnu is the same thing as your Atman. And the same thing as what's in the chairs and the trees and the cows. It's all the same thing. And Christians don't believe that. We believe that God is separate from creation. That God created all of these things. And God sustains all of these things. But God is not these things. He's distinct. And then finally, the big three, the creator, the sustainer, and the ender, or the recreator. Uh, this is, in, in Christian terms, this is what's called modalism. The idea is that, uh, sort of like I am a uh, a pastor and a friend and a husband. It's kind of different hats that I wear, but I'm all the same guy. Uh, that's like this. Uh, Brahma and Vishnu and Shiva and Lakshmi and Ganesha and all of them are just different manifestations of the same God. Different hats that the same God wears. And Christians don't believe that. We believe that there are three distinct persons in the Trinity. Father, Son, and Spirit. It's not like God's Father sometimes, and then he comes over and does Son stuff for a while, then he's got to slip over and get the Spirit stuff that he hadn't been taken care of. There are three different persons who are all one God. And when God creates, all three members of the Trinity create. It's not like the Father creates and the Son saves and the Spirit sustains. All three are always doing all three things. What one does, all do. That's different. Any questions about that's like the real big heady theological one. <laughs> but again, this is like this is when when people say, "Well, I think all I think all religions are basically all right." I'm like, "Well, we can't like we can't be. One of us is right, and one of us is wrong." And obviously, I think I'm right, or I'd be a Hindu, right? So, but but we can't just say everyone's right. Modalism is where God has different modes that he's in. God's in father mode, then he's in son mode, then he's in spirit mode, but he's, he's just one guy doing three different things. 
And that's a, that is a, that is a heresy that the church has condemned when it comes to defining the Trinity, because that's how some people try to talk about it. They say, well, think about it as like God's one person, but he does three different roles. Sometimes he's the Father, sometimes he's the Son, sometimes he's the Spirit. And some people have tried to explain the Trinity that way, and that's not how the scriptures reveal God to be. It's helpful to think about it, but it helps us in the wrong ways. So. Great question. Nope. Or if they do, they don't know. Okay. Good. Yep, they don't know. I mean, sort of like, uh, to be fair, right, we don't know where God came from. Right? I mean, people have asked that. I've had, you know, youth and people, everyone asked that. Well, okay, God created everything, but who created God? Or where did God come from? We were like, we say God's eternal. God's always been here. And we don't know how to wrap our brain around that. That's just what we, that's how we say it. So... Okay, let's talk about creation then. Um, so, Hindus believe in Maya, right? Which is that creation is fundamentally impermanent. And, and that... Um, what, and Christians believe that creation is really God's final plan. What we're going to see in the end is a return to sort of what we had in the beginning. Right, where God and humanity are dwelling, to, dwelling together in creation. So uh, creation is not impermanent. Creation is not something that's just here for a while and then is going to be gone. But this is actually a gift from God to humanity to be enjoyed with God. Uh, Hindus believe that ultimately, finally, in the end, if there's ever an end, everything will be just reabsorbed into the Brahman. It'll just all be ocean again. Now, here's where I wanted to make an important distinction between the way a Hindu would look at creation and the way Christians would. Uh, we believe that the reason we have stuff, the reason God gave us a creation, is so that the created things would point us back to God. So, for instance, back to our analogy earlier, the reason that I love steak, because when I bite into a steak, I know that God loves me very much. I can taste and see that the Lord is good, right? But but but, but really, that, I mean, tongue in cheek, uh, and all joking aside, that is the purpose of creation. The purpose of stuff is to point us back to the Creator. And Paul acknowledges in Romans one, he says, "Now we get that all messed up. We get we get the stuff confused with the guy that made the stuff, and we start worshiping the thing instead of the Maker of the things." Sure, but that's our that's our pro that's our problem. That's not the stuff. That doesn't mean that stuff is inherently bad. And Hinduism, now when we do Buddhism next week, Buddhism has a stronger stance on the material world than Hinduism does. Hinduism doesn't quite come out and say stuff is evil. But it certainly doesn't, in, at least in my exploration of Hinduism, it doesn't have as high a, uh, as high a view of creation as uh, Christianity does. Though, most Hindus I met take better care of creation than Christians do, so I don't know what that says. Um, most Hindus that I've met take better care of creation than Christians do. So, well, sure. Uh, again, I'm just I'm just pointing it out. Um, okay. Uh, next, sometimes this is sort of like the Krishna and Jesus thing being the same. Some people will try to say that the the big three in Hinduism are kind of like the Trinity. 
And we just talked about this. It's not, it's not the same. God is three persons. Wait, did I go backwards? I did. Okay. I don't know what just happened. Maybe I just forgot to make a slide. How about that? I did. All right. Ignore that slide. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Um, so, can I black this out? I bet I can. Mm, somewhere. There we go. Yeah, well, that's uh, so that's just how, how Hindus see creation, that creation is fundamentally impermanent, it's all going to be reabsorbed, and that stuff can actually get in the way, uh, distracts us because, of, because we get too attached to it. Okay, uh, so I'll black this out because this is not what I wanted to talk about. I forgot to make a slide, so my fault. Uh, so the, the other distinction that I wanted to make before we get to the last one is between karma and grace. Okay? Um, Hindus believe that, that your actions necessarily decide your fate. Right? If you're, if you're mostly good, good karma, you move up. If you're mostly bad, bad karma, you move down. Uh, and actually, there is an idea that's very similar to this in the Old Testament. Uh, scholars call it Deuteronomistic theology, but it's where God says things to the Israelites like, if you bless me, I will bless you, and if you curse me, I will curse you. If you keep my law, then I will prosper you. If you don't, then I won't. And you see that plenty of places in the Old Testament. That's It's in all over the book of Proverbs. It's all through Deuteronomy. It's all through the, the kings. You know, when they have a good king, God bless them, they do good stuff. When they have a bad king, God curse them, they do bad stuff. Uh, but the cross changed all of that. And, and, and that's, that's what we believe. That's why we're Christian. Because we believe that because of Jesus' death and resurrection, then the things that we have done, good or bad, don't matter. What matters is the work that Jesus accomplished. And so our good things are never enough to be good enough for God. And our bad things are never bad enough to keep us from God. Because what matters is not what we do or don't do. What matters, ultimately, is what Christ has done for us. And so that's a, that's a major, major difference between Hindu theology and Christian theology. Ultimately, I think that's what it is. I think it gets a little squishy in the middle some places, but. Yes. Until you're reabsorbed into the Brahmin, until you've got enough good karma and done it enough times that you finally escape. But most Hindu, most Hindus talk about it in terms of hundreds and thousands of lives. It's not like third time's a charm. Uh, maybe not their only reason, but probably their ultimate reason. I mean, I think I've met a lot of Hindus that are just genuine, generally nice people, you know. Uh, and I don't think the only reason that they smiled at me was to get another point in the win column. But, <laughs> but you know, but ultimately, ultimately, yeah. I mean, that their entire theological structure is centered around accumulating more good than bad, and so. Uh, Ultimately, I think that's where it takes you. So, in the end, oh, yeah, fine. And when everything's said and done, they're reabsorbed into the Brahmin, and their Atman is not them anymore. Yeah, gone or with again. It's when you talk to Hindus, it's they don't 
no one knows because we're still in we're still here so we don't know we don't know what it's like just milkshake <laughs> yeah milkshakes are like heaven right uh, yeah, just just moksha, just that release, that uh, release from samsara, release from the cycle. That's that's the closest thing. To, but again, but the, uh, they don't they don't really have any. No, no one comes back from that, so they don't they don't have any description of it. It's just good. Yeah, that's yeah, and that's what you want eventually. So, all right, the last one. Oh, we're doing pretty good. good. We get right, right about on time. Uh, we disagree, and we've kind of been talking about this, but we, we disagree about our eschatology, the way things end up. Uh, in Hinduism, time is cyclical. Everything just repeats in Hinduism. Uh, around and around and around and around and around. Things that have happened before are going to happen again, and things that you're seeing right now, you know, don't get too upset about something because it's going to happen again later, and also don't get too excited about something because it's going to end. Round and round and round and round and round. It's not going anywhere. There's no purpose. There's no end. There's no goal. But Christians believe that the world is going somewhere. That it had a particular beginning and a particular end. And that there's a plan and there's a purpose and it's all going and working towards something. So the goal for a Hindu is just to get out of the cycle. Right? Just to escape from the round and round and round and round and round. And escape is non-existence. It's a reabsorption. It's, it's, a, it's an end of identity. Uh, for a Christian, it's we actually believe that when we are in Christ, we are most fully who we are supposed to be. Our, our identity is affirmed and our identity is celebrated and we become most fully ourselves and fully alive when we're participating in God's purposes and when we are moving in the same direction that God is moving the world. So we, we don't believe that we're just going to end and stop. We believe that we will we are eternal in the best possible sense of that word. So, so those those four things, the way we talk about the Trinity uh, versus their conception of God, our, our, our larger views on creation and the purpose of stuff, uh, karma and how we talk about grace, and then also uh, where everything is going, how we understand the last things. Those are, those are four major, major differences uh, that ought to provide you with plenty of discussion fodder for you and your new. Uh, Trinity and uh, how we talk about God. The nature of God, uh, the nature of creation, uh, karma versus grace, and then where the where everything is going, our our, our eschatology, how it's all going to end, if it all ends. So a couple of closing thoughts, uh, assuming that you're going to have some new Hindu friends, I want to teach you uh, a few ideas about how you can be a perfect stranger. Uh, when you go over to their houses or something like that. First of all, not all Indians are Hindu. Uh, about 80%-ish are. There are about 200 million Indians who are Muslim. And then there are also a pretty significant number of Christian Indians. Uh, so, so just keep that in mind when you see a Hindu person. Don't just immediately walk up and talk about Krishna. Do a little homework first. Uh, second, if you happen, like I did, to go to a, a puja, to attend a, a worship gathering, a little uh, ceremony thing, you 
you can refuse to the food. You can just kind of stand at the back like I did and just not, not really participate, just watch, and that won't offend anyone. You don't have to worry about them giving you a weird eye about why aren't you doing stuff. You, you just kind of hang back at the back, kind of politely observe without participating. Uh, if you go to, if, if, an, if a Hindu person has you over to their home, you should go ahead and take your shoes off at the door. Uh, meals are going to be vegetarian. Expect that, almost certainly. So hopefully you don't fly into a meat rage and throw your plate on the floor or something like that. And then this is a weird one, but it's real. Uh, just always use your right hand for everything, always. Um, the, particularly over here in the U.S. of A., this is really more of just like a, a nicety, but in India, uh, there's not really a, a nice, super delicate way to say this, but your left hand is what you do the dirty work with, and you don't always have access to like water and stuff like that to, to wash real well, so everything in Indian culture is done with your right hand. <laughs> All the gods, yeah, it could be, could be part of it. So, no, that is that's just Indian culture, and it's not exclusive to Indian culture. You'll find a lot of a lot of third world cultures are like that. But but what you will see even over here, like if you go to an Indian restaurant where Indian people are eating, you'll notice that they they you don't even have their left hand anywhere near the table. They do everything with just with their right hand. They're shaking hands. They do it with their right hand. Every every social thing is done with your right hand. And every personal thing is done with your left hand. Very much so. Uh, yeah, and again, again, it tends to be in any, any, um, a lot of, yeah, just a lot. Of, that, that's it's certainly not uh, as Carol pointed out. It's not, it's not a particularly Indian or Hindu thing. So, too bad. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, sure. Yeah. I mean, yeah, if you see that, uh, I, I don't know how much of that you're going to encounter in, in Beaver Creek, but, um, just kind of, just, huh? Our seek. Oh, okay. 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 Cool. Oh, great. Cool. Uh, you know, I I have never had an encounter with a Hindu person who is unkind. I mean, they're, they're as a whole. And again, that's not everyone, but as a whole, they tend to be a very kind, gracious people. So, uh, so here's what I want to do. I'm sure you have a lot of questions that I could not answer. Uh, many of them were already voiced tonight. So if you want to send those questions to me, I'm going to try to get a friend of mine who knows way, way, way more about Hinduism than I do uh, on a Skype chat with me and record it. So I will ask your questions to him, and then uh, he can provide us with lots of answers. And then I, as the, the sheet I gave you last week, I will post that uh, on YouTube, and then you can get on and watch it uh, if, if, if this is something that you're 
still really interested. So there are the ways that you can send me your questions. Email them to me. You can tweet them at me if you can get them into 140 characters or less. Uh, or you can send me a message on Facebook. So we have about five minutes left. So uh, if you have any closing thoughts or comments, we have plenty of time for those. Uh, next week we are going to be doing Buddhism, which is... Uh, Buddhism grew out of Hinduism as sort of a reaction to Hinduism, so uh, we'll be building on a lot of the stuff that we did this week. So before we close down, do you have any questions? Have you seen any movies where the guards go and they get in the Ganges? Uh-huh, the Ganges, yeah. What It's actually sort of like the, the way they venerate the cow. Uh, the Ganges is the main river in India, and so it just became sacred mainly because of its geography. It's, it's, it's one of the largest rivers in the world. And it was, again, when you are by a river, you depend on the river for everything. And so it just became venerated. So it is considered a holy site. And so it's sort of like taking a pilgrimage. Uh, it's considered when you can go and wash in the Ganges, uh, it's, considered a, it's considered a holy thing to be able to do. Really? Okay. Uh, yeah, I've from what I've heard that you don't actually want to get in the Ganges because uh, it's a it's a pretty terrifyingly filthy place. So. I did not realize multiple births were considered. Oh, okay. Okay. 